As a pastor, I'm constantly concerned about how to create connections beyond just the weekend services. And one of the valuable tools that we have found for achieving this at our church is our app powered by Subsplash. It's one thing to have an app. It's another thing to have an app that has the ability to allow your community to access messages, resources, and even give. And Subsplash created that for us. It's become our go-to platform for connecting with our congregation in ways we never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a platform or even just an app. It brings people together, empowers giving, and transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to visit their website at subsplash.com. That's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H.com. Subsplash.com. Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. Join us each week as we work to make faith simple. This is Simple Faith. Do you know what EQ is? Do you know if you have it? It's this buzz term that a lot of people have been using for now many years called emotional intelligence or emotional quotient, EQ. How do you know if you have it? How do you know if you've hired somebody with it? What do you look for in somebody with it? Today, we're going to find out more about that. You know, following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. And each week, we try to make faith simple. And this is Simple Faith. I'm your host, Rusty George. I've had a chance to meet an incredible pastor by the name of Kevin Lloyd out from the Carolina area. And he is going to help us, not just with some ministry stuff and coaching stuff, but also in helping to define this buzz term of EQ. What is it? How do you find it? How do you spot it? And how do you have it? I think you're really going to be blessed by my conversation with Kevin Lloyd. I want to thank our friends at Subsplash for their sponsoring of the podcast. What a blessing they are to so many people. I encourage you to check them out for all resources for your church. But now, here is my conversation with Pastor Kevin Lloyd. Kevin Lloyd, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, for our listeners that don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you, Rusty. It's an honor to be with you guys. I love I love the pod. Uh, I'm, I am a, a listener. I'm a part of your audience as well. So that's the first thing. So thank you, can, you. Yeah, I don't know if there's royalties that I can get from that, but I'll, I'll take it if there are. But yeah, but uh, but no. So yeah, my name's Kevin Lloyd. I'm I'm an executive pastor at LifePoint Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, we're we're if you don't know where Wilmington is, we're the complete opposite side of the country uh, from from you, uh, Rusty. We're we're on the other ocean, so we're a beach town. We are, and and you and I were talking about this off camera, but we are where um, Outer Banks is is kind of set and filmed and all that stuff. So if you don't know us for anything else, we're known for that. But um, but I've uh, Life Points. Uh, we're a multi-site church. We're four campuses now, um, and just moving fast and furious. I've landed here after being executive pastor at kind of multiple churches really across the country. I've been in San Diego. I was in Augusta, Georgia for uh, a long time and, uh, and then here in Wilmington. And so God's been good to us. I've been married for 25, almost 25 years and in ministry for the same amount of time. And so we really it's what we know. It's who we are. It's what we do, mm. and uh, and God's just been good to us. Yeah. So that's that's kind of how we our our quick path without going all the way back to our mother's womb of how we got to where we are today. <laughs> you know, um, I, I remember I lived in uh, Lexington, Kentucky for a while, and everything hinged on 
UK basketball, University mm. of Kentucky basketball. Yep. It, when you're living in Augusta, Georgia, does everything revolve around the Masters? So for one week out of the year, yeah. Uh, <laughs> for the rest of the country, it does all the time. For Augusta, you know, it's one of those things that I would say it's a point of pride. I mean, you know, they say it, it's a tradition like no other, and that's true. Uh, and it kind of bleeds through that community like it's very much in the best way possible, you know, a tradition that that takes a lot of pride in that. But um, oddly enough, it 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 doesn't revolve around as much as you would think. OK, um, OK. It's even where the national is at is just in a different part of town. It's not uh, it's not where most people live, uh, but where it really kind of like hits home is the weeks leading up to it. Uh, spring break is that week. Most locals leave town that week and rent houses out <laughs> and do all the stuff. Uh, every, you, when you go to Disney World on Masters Week is where you see everyone from Augusta. So uh, yeah, okay. so that's kind of the way it rolls there. Interesting. Okay. I guess the rest of the country, that's all we know Augusta that's for. That's all you know. Exactly. That's all you guys <laughs> Right. Exactly right. So now you're in another city that's suddenly become known for uh, something that the rest of us only see on TV, which is right. Outer Banks, which our listeners may or may not have watched that show on Netflix. If you have junior high or high school age girls, you probably have. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about how just how accurate is that show based upon where you live? I mean, is it a true representation? Uh, we don't use uh, the language kooks and pogues, I think is what they say. We don't really use that language around here. Yeah. I, I would say it's an accurate representation of some of the surf culture. Okay. That's probably a good way to say it. But, you know, it, it's like anything. You, you they wrote, A little bit of it is romanticized. I think uh, it's pretty much about high school kids that live with no parents and that kind of stuff. Right. Like it, None of that's real. Right. But uh, there's no treasure hunting that's going on around here that I know of. Uh, one cool thing about Wilmington, this is not an Outer Banks thing, but Wilmington, because uh, of where we're at, we're sort of the Outer Banks in Wilmington are sort of on that furthest point of North Carolina out into the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And Wilmington has a really deep river that runs uh, through the city. Well, because of both of those things, back in the 1700s, whenever it was they were around, uh, Wilmington was frequented by pirates. And so some of the most famous pirates would hide their ships in the river, the Cape Fear River here, to get away from the British. And because of that, they would camp out here for years. And so today there's a lot of descendants of Blackbeard the pirate. His name's Edward Teach. Uh, we actually had a guy in our church uh, who was, his last name is Teachy. And he's a direct descendant of Blackbeard the pirate. So a lot of the famous, like Anne Bonnie and all those those famous pirates, like, have roots in Wilmington. So oh our, my word. Yeah, that is right. so cool. It's one of the like interesting things from here. So yeah. Oh my goodness. I guess you just oh, I always thought those were fairy tales and here I they did are. too, you have, right? You have direct descendants exactly. of them in your church. So I don't cool. I don't know about Jack Sparrow, but some of the rest of them Oh are well I like to believe he's real. <laughs> so how'd you get into the role of being an executive pastor? Because a lot of people don't come out of seminary thinking that's what I want to do. That's a great question. So for me, I, I kind of ask myself the same question sometimes. I was a youth pastor. So I coming out of minute out of school. Uh, that's what I did. It's what I felt called to do. Uh, like a lot of guys, it's kind of how I got started. And I had been, um, been doing that for about five years, uh, maybe six. And we were with our team, our church at the time in Georgia, we were 
right around that thousand person mark, we were kind of in that, that ballpark. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with any growing church, there comes a place where like you need someone, I don't know if you've ever read the book, the synergist, it's a book by Les McEwen. And and he really talks about kind of that person that's kind of helping, you know, jail everything. And we didn't have that. And so, um, we were sitting around with our leadership team. There were four of us. We took a spiritual gift survey and somehow I scored higher on administration than I guess anyone thought that I would. <laughs> and I'll be honest, Rusty, I think I, I either cheated or something on the test because I don't feel that way at all. Yeah. But my senior pastor just kind of looked at, at that, looked at what he knew of me. And I think he knew that student ministry was not my forever. Mm. And, and I felt that too. I was, I'd kind of been feeling that. And he just, he kind of uh, threw it out there and said, Hey, listen, I need somebody who can stand in the middle and, and be like Spider-Man holding the things together, you know, and would that be something you'd be willing to step into? And, and it was a challenging season. I mean, the first, the things that I knew nothing about, which were like church finance and how to raise money and how to manage money and how to, how, what I was good at was people. And I think that he saw that. And so what got me into the role was being good with people, pretty intuitive when it came to ministry and a good communicator. Mm. And I think those things are soft skills. They're kind of a, you know, most people get hired for their IQ. They get fired for their EQ. And I think what he saw was I had a pretty high EQ and I could pick up the rest. And so that's what got me into the role. And I had a little bit of a knack for systems, which we were not great at. And, uh, and that's what landed me there. And it was a, uh, I would say the first three years were a journey like no other. Mm. Like it was, it was good. I felt like I was in the right seat. But when you go from being a staff person, that's, for lack of a better term, your boys with everybody else on the staff, right? Your fraternity brothers mm-hmm. to all of a sudden now you're having to like lead those individuals. And I, I did a lot of stuff, right? I did a lot of stuff wrong. Um, but that was a, a, an interesting first few years for sure. All right, I want to ask you about all that because I think there are people listening that even if they're not in the ministry world, goodness, they know what it's like to get a promotion and now yeah. they're you know, their lunch buddies are now their subordinates. Or they've been in a role where they think, this isn't a good fit. Uh, I'm going to take a different role, but now it's a huge stretch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about your relationship with God during that time. How did you develop your faith? Um, You know, because we often grow in the valleys and not on the mountaintops, you know, as as we all say. Yeah. But, But, you know, were there certain disciplines that you said, okay, during this season... I'm going to make sure I lean into this discipline so that I'm kind of filled up to be able to be poured out. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that that early, the early years of that transition were very lonely. Mm -hmm. So that, that if I described it in one word, it would be that. And I tell a lot of, you know, younger guys who are stepping into this role or who aspire to a role like this, that it's, it's lonely oftentimes. And so for me, one of the things that really matters is a couple of disciplines. One is the discipline of, of godly relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the best at like uh, fostering relationships with people kind of outside of my circle. And one of the things I just felt prompted of the Lord to do was that. And it was a spiritual discipline for me. Like it was more than just I need to make friends and build my network. I genuinely needed some people who believed in me 
that I could in a, in a tough time or a day where I was second guessing myself, I could pick up the phone and call them and I could hear an audible voice that I was begging God to speak to me. <laughs> right. He oftentimes would speak to me through them. Yeah. And so they became almost, you know, almost my, my, just my chief encouragers. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I really surrounded myself. I widened that circle and those people have been friends really ever since. So that was one, I would say the second discipline for me was rest. Mm. Uh, up until that point, I had not really done that, that intentionally. I wouldn't say that I was burnt out or overworked or anything like that, but I had not approached the Sabbath as what it was designed to be. I had not approached, you know, intentional time away with my family as what it was designed to be. And so that was the thing that I worked the hardest on during that season was just dialing into rest and spending time, honestly, talking to the Lord, but receiving from the Lord. Just at the time we lived on about three acres of land, we were kind of in the woods and I would just sit there and, and sort of just breathe it in. Hmm. Just say, God speak to me and then just breathe that in. Hmm. And so it was a lot more reflection, rest, being invested into rather than like another book that I would read. One thing I will say during that season is my um, up until then, I was a pretty avid reader. I still am, but I was in my mind, I almost like would win the year if I read more new books than I read the year before. <laughs> right. And so it, a challenge I had during that season was like, that was not doing it for me. And so I really honed in on, a, you know, about five, six, seven books that I was just reading year over year. Huh. I wasn't introducing that much new to it. And I still keep that practice huh. because I was, I learned that I was, taking so much in that I was, nothing was like changing on the inside of me. Mm. And so I really had to make a shift there to just listen more, be more reflective, like, like slow down a little bit on the inside in my soul because everything on the outside was picking up steam. That is such a good word. I, I for those of us that are avid readers or consumers of content, it could be podcasts, videos, books, I find that the achiever in me likes to just get them all done, yeah. you know, listen to, <laughs> read, watched, whatever it is. And then I've really not taken anything new. I just have the sense of accomplishment. You're not the first person I've heard talk about just reading a few books, but reading them over and over again. Tell us a few of those that are some of your favorites that you went to a lot during that time or maybe still go back to. That's a really good question. So there was there were a few in the early days that were... Um, just like Erwin McManus wrote that I would just kind of constantly like keep in the, in the quiver. It was back in the early days of his, his authorship when he was writing a lot. Yeah. So some were that, uh, some that to, I'll fast forward to today, the ones that I, I kind of keep in there. One is enemies of the heart by Andy Stanley. Mm. Um, that's one like on the spiritual side of books that I feel like he really highlights. Um, I think it's four or five things that he talks about that are enemies of your heart. And they're pretty macro level, you know, type things. But I would say at least four of the five are things that I struggle with all the time. Mm -hmm. There's just always low lying things that are there. So that's on the spiritual side. That's a book that just helps me on the leadership side. A book that I come back to quite often that's in my my queue right now is a book called Multipliers. It's 
I don't think it's new, but it's by a Liz Wiseman. She's a marketplace leader. And, um, and she just essentially talks about the difference in being a leader who is a diminisher, even an accidental diminisher, uh, versus someone who multiplies influence and impact in, in other people mm. and really poses the question, like, do you want to be somebody who just leverages influence or who actually has an impact? And so those would be two over the last, you know, four, five, six years that have really had a pretty big impact on me. Oh, those are really good. I love that. Um, okay. I, let me ask you this one. Um, you're an executive pastor now of a church. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a, a staff that you're leading. You were told, okay, your EQ is high. So you get this role, which is a great, is a great problem to have. But now you're leading people who you think, oh, your IQ is high, but your EQ is not. <laughs> how how do you help somebody with a low EQ? Because it's one thing to say, go to this conference and learn a new skill. It's another thing to say, yeah. hey, stop being a jerk. So what have you learned along the way that works and does not work? Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. If you're a church leader and your church does not have an app or your app seems to be a little bit limited, check out subsplash.com as a great resource to really give your app all the horsepower that it needs. You can connect people, you can help them get access to messages, and you can help them set up recurring giving, which is a game changer when it comes to resourcing your ministry. Subsplash.com. Okay, back to our episode. Uh, Okay, so one is, and this is a challenge, especially now I'm, I don't know if you're an Enneagram guy. I am. Um, So I'm an Enneagram three. So okay. we, we typically, Enneagram 3s, Enneagram 8s, we typically don't have a problem like just saying what needs to be said, right? So this is more of a challenge if you are not wired this way. But I think one of the first things you have to do is rush to brutal honesty and almost like shake that person into realizing that there's something wrong. And it's, it's not something that they can fix with a silver bullet. It's not something that they can fix with a magic wand. It's probably not something that's going to fix overnight, but it's an awareness. Like you have to, you have to make things that are, bl- you have to uh, shine a spotlight on the fact that it's a blind spot. So that's really step one to me is that it's sitting down and having the conversation. And I, I kind of, we do performance evaluations. In fact, we just came out of the season of that. We do them twice a year. And they're designed to help elevate performance and and create a performance plan. But we also have, we're very honest on the weekly with our team. So our performance evaluations, there's nothing that's saved up until that moment, if that makes sense. Mm, That's good. This, this, however, is one of those things that if I'm, you know, because EQ is something that also has to scale. So like as our church has grown, as your ministry grows, or maybe somebody's given more influence, you may start to see the capacity of like what got them, their emotional intelligence up until now is starting to get peaked. So I typically will hold something like that. That's almost, it's, it's something that's not just a performance thing. It's not a quick fix, but it's a, a new journey for them of discovering some, a higher plane. Um, I'll typically save that for a performance evaluation because it's a deeper conversation. It's, it's oftentimes just saying, Hey, I think this is a blind spot for you. What do you see with that? 
And then we just start going down the journey. Uh, Aaron Burke, who's a pastor in Tampa, uh, Florida, they just released uh, on his, he has a podcast as well. They just released maybe like a six or seven uh, episode um, deal on emotional intelligence. And I'm having all of our campus pastors listen to it right now. And in our campus pastor meetings, we're talking about it. So I will try to go in and introduce it. Then I'll try to resource that. And honestly, Rusty, I feel like it takes longer to help someone grow in their emotional intelligence than in any other area. You can study for a test. It's hard to study on how to read a room. Hmm. So like you, you really just have to help stretch them in that area. Hmm. Um, I was having a conversation with a leader today. They're not on our, our team, but it's someone that I kind of work with. And I just told him, I said, Hey, I think part of the problem might be you. <laughs> and I think it's because you're not a very kind, gentle leader. And part of the reason is because I don't think you're a very kind, gentle person hmm. and helping them see that. And then Rusty, I feel like you have to, at some point ask the question, do you care enough to want to grow? Mm. And if you don't, well, you're really smart. I'm kind of smart. Neither one of us can help them grow if they don't want to. So it's just coming to that place of like, you really tap into someone's teachability when you introduce an idea like EQ, because it's going to take a lot to learn. Talk about reading a room. Mm. Uh, different people do that differently. They walk into a room and let's just stick with the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. A three on his dark day can look around and say, who's the most important person in the room that I need to become friends with? Yeah. Um, an eight could view it as a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, know, uh, you know, a one or a two could, uh, well, a two could probably just, you know, go around and pick up everybody's trash and help right. everybody. So, <laughs> um, so what, what do you see in the people that read a room well? Yeah. So the first thing is they know themselves really well, like they're, they're secure. Mm. So again, a three walks into a room and an insecure me, if I'm insecure that day, what I'm trying to do is be the life of the party. Mm. When I know myself well, I walk into a room and look around and ask the question, like, does it need to, does it need a life of the party? Is that what the room needs to elevate it? Is that what the people need to elevate it? Yeah. And it's, it's kind of just, I feel like people who are best at doing this don't come in with, as we would say in the South, like both guns blazing, right? They don't come in with like their personality, just like taking over the room. There's a time and place for that if it needs to be. But most of the time, that's really not the case. Mm -hmm. So I'll give a good example. I was with one of our campuses yesterday that's down at, um, in the, at one of our beach communities and the makeup of this campus is it's a lot of guys who are like, they're surfers, they're outdoorsmen, they're, they're just that kind of individual. Well, I, if I go in and I start trying to sway a conversation a different direction and just take over, all of them are going to tune out. Mm -hmm. They're all going to tune out. But if I just walk in and listen for five minutes and connect with their stories rather than trying to tell my own. If I, if I don't try to trump and one up what they're doing, then it allows me to one, be like ingratiated into the room 
and then be able to have a little bit of influence, mm-hmm. then be able to laugh. And I feel like step one is knowing yourself. Step two is kind of taking the, the, the time to just figure out like what, what's the dominant spirit of the room. Yeah. And some of that it's tough because it's not formulaic. Um, I compare it to when you're hiking up Everest, you know, at Everest, they have base camps. I've never hiked it, but I've heard that there are base camps at different elevations and the base camps are so you can stay there for a week or however many days and you acclimate to that atmosphere. Mm. Well, I feel like that's what you need to do when you come into a room is you need to acclimate to that atmosphere. Mm. You need to see what's the, what, what is it? What is this room? What's the oxygen level? Well, how much of my personality does it need? Does it need me to be dominant? Is it a bunch of dominant people? Does it need some laughter? Does it need some, you know, humanity? And, and then I would come in and say the, the third step to me is the old John Maxwell principle. It's figuring out how do I put a 10 on everyone in here's head? And sometimes it's one at a time. Sometimes it's going to, especially if you're talking about a room of quieter people, you're probably needing to sit one-on-one. It's going to take longer. If it's a room of where you can capture attention, you need to be able to do that in a way that's a little larger of a scale. But it's it's focusing on like how do the people in this room feel about themselves and how can I elevate the way they feel about themselves? We, Jesus did it all the time. Yeah. He would walk into rooms. He would, I mean, walk into situations and survey it and look around and go, hey, these people are hungry. Like, before we do anything else, let's why don't we feed them? Mm. Right? He was he was surveying moments, and uh, so I would say that's my non formula formula <laughs> for reading a room. I wish we had it like um, you know there there's five types of people needed in every room. You know, I do too. Yeah, and you walk <laughs> you walk in and go, okay, which one do I need to be based upon the room? Yeah, you know, somebody should work on that. That can be the next. Uh, Working genius. That can be the next working genius, right? I was going <laughs> to say Patrick Lencioni will come yeah. out with a course. Yeah. I think it, we mentioned the book Synergist earlier. Yeah, that's true. I think true. that's a skill of a synergist. Like, um, that's true. It talks about there's three different cogs of the wheel. There's the artist or, or you know, the creator. There's the entrepreneur. There's the operator. But that synergist is the one that can kind of look at all of it and go, what does the moment call for? Yeah. And it's just, it's this different, um, emotional gear right. that exists in some. It's such a difficult thing uh, for people when they walk into a room of peers that all have the same job, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, you, you could see it with soccer moms all in a PTA meeting, Yeah, but you could also see it, I've seen this all the time, when I walk into a room filled with lead pastors, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because they're all trying to figure out who's the funniest, who's the smartest, yeah. who's got the yeah. biggest church, you know? Right. <laughs> and it, the first day is really just everybody trying to figure out what's my niche here. Yeah. And it and it is a skill. You're right. Well, and I'll say this about you, Rusty, and I've, I've noticed this about... I've been fortunate a couple of times to be around like even a Craig Rochelle or someone like that. But, but you do this well is you don't come in and try to dominate the room. Mm. Like if everybody else is talking about church size, Mm. I've noticed with you, you don't walk in and try to, even if yours is larger, (laughs) try to throw that Trump card down and say, well, yeah, but it (laughs) it's, and I, I do think that it's, it's an emotional intelligence mark that you're Mm. secure enough to go last. You're secure Mm. enough to not have to even have a word 
in those moments. Mm. I think there's something, some of the most powerful uh, influential leaders that I know are that way. They're wired that way. Mm. They don't have to, they don't have to have the microphone, so to speak. Well, that's kind. I appreciate that. But as a guy with the mic, now I get to ask another question. So uh, <laughs> tell me about uh, Courageous Pastors, because at some point, yeah. you've started to become a coach. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had uh, Sean Lovejoy on and Adam Bishop, and and they had great stuff to say. That's great. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about... Um, you know, how you got involved with them, how mm-hmm. you started becoming a coach. Did you have a coach first? And a little bit about what you do with that. That's awesome. So I did not have a formal coach at first. I, I mentioned earlier when I got into the XP world, um, I was looking for a relationship. So I did join probably four to five coaching networks mm. in a row. And through that is where I connected with Sean Lovejoy. And Sean was the founder, CEO of Courageous Pastors. And, and uh, at the time, he was a senior pastor himself. And what I found in him was someone who was um, like-minded, mm. uh, but also someone who understood what it took to like lead healthy and live healthy. Like the systems were healthy. They were simple. They were transferable. They scaled. Um, his life was healthy. I watched the way that he was with his wife. And at the time, he had two like middle school daughters and an elementary school daughter. So they were much younger and, uh, and I just watched him. And so a lot of it came from him. And then he pretty quickly came to me and said, Hey, would you be interested in being a coach along with at the time about four other coaches? And so when courageous pastors launched, I was one of the original four or five mm. that was a part of it. And, uh, and I'll be honest, you know, we, a little bit in those early couple years, built the plane as we flew it, man. We were we were all a part of the same culture and had been in the same orbit. Um, Sean was kind of the central hub of that. Mm-hmm. And then what's happened over the years is we've been able to systematize that around what we call gears of growth, which is we say healthy growth comes around when three three interdependent gears are working together, your culture, your system, and your team. And so we've been able to build like uh, a pretty congruent um, growth plan out of that. And so now we have coaches. I want to say there are close to 20 coaches across the country. They're all practitioners. uh, So they're working in a local church, feeling the same, you know, pain and stress and everything else that every other pastor is. And we come alongside pastors across the country and we just help them and really great coaching uh, I say gives you three things. It gives you perspective. I mean, it's good to have, you know, a, a system to run and a plan to run. And we have that, but perspective are in those moments where like you're about to walk into a meeting and fire somebody and you just need to pick up the phone and call a coach and go, Hey, here's what I'm about to say. Does this sound right? <laughs> and a coach can say, yeah, but just don't say it that way. Mm. Right. Just a little perspective. Sometimes to say, hey, the the ship's not sinking. Don't feel like you need to jump overboard. What you're going through is normal. Uh, Most pastors are the largest fish in their pond. Hmm. So if you can just bring perspective of what the world they're in is helpful. So we help bring perspective. We help bring permission. You know, you're this way, Rusty. I'm this way too. Like you're faced with a big decision and you wonder sometimes like, I feel like this is what God's leading me to do but is this just bad pizza that I ate last night? Mm -hmm. Am I just like, am I way off? And a lot of times it's just confirmation of somebody else just saying, no, I think that's right on. Mm -hmm. That's right on. And so permission. 
And then if you have perspective, you have permission, oftentimes it brings peace. Hmm. And so good coaching helps you get off a call. This happened with me um, just uh, two weeks ago. We got off a call and and a guy just said, this is great. Like I, I feel at P I'm going to lay my head down tonight and sleep well because I've been stirring around this one decision and I know it's the right one. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, good coaching is that. And that's really what courageous pastors does. It helps pastors have just what we say, the courage to make the decision, to have the hard conversation. Sometimes the courage just to show back up at the office after a bad sermon. Uh, it, it just helps them keep going. <laughs> Oh, those Mondays are tough, aren't they? I know, right? Just, oh, come back in. Everybody's looking at you like that was awful. Uh, well, Kevin, this has That's been good. awesome. For people that are interested in coaching, uh, where should I send them? CourageousPastors.com? CourageousPastors.com. And the next step from there will be to uh, schedule what's called a strategy session. It's about a 30-minute informational call. And uh, you'll talk to our coaches. We'll talk about, you know, for, for those who are interested in it, just what what's going on in their world, like what, what kind of pain they're facing, what season they're in, and if and how coaching could be a fit for them. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been awesome, buddy. It's always fun talking with you. Uh, Likewise, man. Hope you uh, continue to thrive and enjoy North Carolina. I love that part of the country. It's beautiful. Same. Uh, so go Tar Heels, and uh, <laughs> thank you for your time, brother. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it, Rusty. You're the man. Well, great stuff from Kevin. I so appreciate his insight, his help, his clarity. And he's such an incredible leadership coach. And speaking of that, we have another leadership coach by the name of Matt Palland, who's going to join us next week as he breaks down how to find a leadership coach and what you look for in that. You're not going to want to miss it because it's going to make your life and your faith a lot more simple. As always, share this episode with a friend. Reach out to Kevin on social media and thank him for being on the podcast. And as always, keep it simple.